0: Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever advancing field of animal welfare. From interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast, enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Today we have a special guest, uh, Demi Booth, and we're going to be talking about behavioral husbandry
1: programs, animal welfare, and managing those programs uh, within zoos. So very excited to welcome uh, Demi to the podcast. Yeah,
2: thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, so we've been uh, interacting mainly on uh, LinkedIn for a number of years because Demi puts out uh, some really interesting comment uh content and does some uh, uh really cool courses and is very involved in the whole uh you know sort of animal welfare community and the zoo community so um you know it's good to finally e-meet you and uh i'm excited to to talk about some of these uh, topics uh with you today so yeah uh so maybe uh you can sort of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your sort of background and how you got involved in animal welfare and behavioral husbandry
2: Yeah. um, So I'm originally from Northern Ireland. Um, So I I grew up in the middle of nowhere. Lots of cows, lots of sheep and not much else going on. So uh, for me, I always knew I wanted to work with animals. It was the complete opposite of my family. So uh, they're afraid of every animal. So uh, I started volunteering quite young. Um, I was lucky enough to have a relative that had some sheep. So I would help out with lambing. And then I had a neighbor, Trish, who was really good. She let me look after her horses. She taught me a lot about horses. So, Um, yeah, I I started volunteering quite young. And then I realized that I wanted to work with animals, but I wanted to be somehow involved in conservation and education. I, I thought zoos were, you know, Really interesting and I was interested in going down that kind of road. So um, I did my bachelor's at Nottingham Trent University. I did a bachelor's in zoo biology. So I, I loved the course. I did a few internships around my studies and yeah, I, I really decided that animal management was something that I wanted to pursue. So after I graduated, um, I was working as a student keeper at Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust in, in Jersey, the Channel Islands. It's Jersey Zoo now. And it you know, I love that zoo so much. But I was looking for, you know, jobs. I was a new graduate. I needed a full time job and I was applying to everything. And I came across this advertisement about a new project over in the UAE for a new a new zoo slash safari type project. And they were looking for keepers and I applied and I never expected to hear back, you know, because it was just so random. And yeah, I, I got a call back and I got offered the job and you know I was young I wanted to travel so I jumped at the opportunity because it's just you know so unique you don't often see new zoos starting up so it was a really good opportunity to see yeah. how that works and yeah it was, it's pretty cool so that's how I ended up over on this side of the world and uh, yeah I originally started as a keeper so um, I just started kind of developing the enrichment program for our primates at that time And then our director at the time asked if I would become the enrichment officer for the park as well as, you know, keeper as well. So I started, that's how I started kind of organizing the behavioral husbandry program. And then I've been out here for quite some time. So the role has kind of evolved in a way to encompass like all things welfare. So welfare audits, um, monitoring the enrichment program, training programs, research and then like staff training and development as well. So it's been pretty cool. You know, it's just kind of grown into something bigger. So it's been really nice.
1: Yeah, no, that's that sounds amazing. And it's it's always so interesting to hear, you know, how other zoos approach, you know, welfare audits and their welfare programs in particular, because, you know, there's not a really there's not a whole lot of handbooks for how to do it, and it's and it's such a new developing uh, area of of science that it's just really, you know, everybody could be the one that's doing it perfectly, and it's just it's so interesting to see you know how everybody um, is doing it and how everybody approaches it because there's there's such variety and there's so many interesting systems happening. Uh, at zoos. And it's, and it's, uh, there's not really one place you can go to kind of see how everybody's doing it and uh, the best ways of doing it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. So um, yeah, we're excited to uh, hear what you have to say. But um, uh, maybe we can start a little bit with some of your recent work. Um, You've recently uh, published a paper uh, with a colleague about nocturnal behavior of sand cat kittens during the weaning period and uh, the activity budgets and social behavior of elephants. So those are two, you know, very, very different um, studies. So I'd love to hear sort of your involvement in that and uh, and some of that, some of that work.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, they are two very kind of different directions. But Um, I don't know, for me, research is kind of a passion of mine, especially, you know, ethology, animal behavior. I I love it. I find it interesting, you know. So um, our small mammal department was actually planning to do this research, you know, so I decided I would help them get involved and, um, you know, help them write up the paper and everything. And yeah, it's pretty cool because, you know, Sankats, they're arid desert specialists, right? So they're, they're only found in like the deserts of life. Northern Africa, Southwestern, and then Central Asia, and they're really um, sort of their distribution is really wide and sparse, and it, it's really like dependent on certain ecological conditions, so you know like abundance of prey and vegetation and things like that, so they're really kind of elusive in the wild, and there's not that much research about them, especially you know their behavior and they're nocturnal and of course they live in um, in burrows, so you know you don't really see what they're doing so For me, that was really interesting to get an insight, and of course, like in terms of animal management as well. For us, it was very important to see what they're actually doing because, you know, keepers we're working from like six a.m. to like five, you know, in shifts. So Mm. after five o'clock, there's no one in the zoo, and we miss all of their, their, you, you know, their most active time. We miss all their active behavior. So there could be certain behavioral issues that we're missing as well that we're just not seeing during the day. So for me, that was kind of my spurring what spurred me on for that research you know so uh yeah how we did it was we set up some um camera traps in the enclosure and we reported from um 7 p.m like sundown to sun sunset to sunrise from 7 p.m until about 6 a.m and uh we actually you know were able to see when they're exactly most active and it was really interesting because they're really active at 7 p.m and then mm-hmm. not again until like 1 a.m. to 6 a.m., that kind of time duration, those hours. So it was, it was really cool to see like what right. exactly they're doing. So that was really nice. Yeah. So um, yeah. aside from that as well, it's, it's really useful for enrichment evaluation as well. Um, because for us, like as keepers, when we give enrichment, especially for these nocturnal species, when we come in the next day, we're evaluating the enrichment, but it's all indirect observation, of course. So,
1: yeah, you know,
2: yeah. it's all like guesswork. We're just, you know, looking at the enrichment and trying to see if maybe they interacted or they ate the food or they moved the box or whatever it is you gave. So it's all guesswork. You have no idea. So when you record it, you're able to really properly evaluate, which is, you know, super important for their enrichment yeah. program.
1: Yeah, and I, I I love the rationale behind uh, you know the constant evaluation because I think you know it, it's more obvious with a nocturnal species that that's something that makes sense. But I think there's so many animals at zoos that just aren't being observed enough, and there could be you know those those hidden behavioral problems that you don't even know about. You know, like if you're trying if if there's only some minor stereotypic behavior that you're addressing during the day that you're noticing. You know, what what does that is that worse at night? Like what's happening at 2 a.m.? Like you, you, you there's so many animals that that's probably the case. And then the surveillance systems just aren't in place to really know about these problems. And how can you really effectively address, you know, welfare for an animal if you don't really have a good idea and a good grasp of what their day actually looks like? Because, you know, as a keeper, especially you are only seeing them, you know, for Sometimes a couple minutes a day, while you're going, you're servicing the exhibit. You're you're watching maybe some inter like enrichment interaction, uh, but yeah, you're not. You, you don't know what's happening throughout the day, and and you get such a rose-colored outlook of what the what the animal's doing because you know you're the one bringing it food, you're bringing it enrichment. So yeah, it's 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 so important to really start laying the foundation of what. These observations actually look like, and what assessment looks like. So, yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's a really cool uh, cool study. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so for the elephants, uh, yeah, it was kind of the same basic rationale. You know, going back to baseline observations, I really wanted to know how our herd was behaving when they're on exhibit. Um, so when they're on show to the public, and uh, so I designed a study. I collected like around 42 hours of behavioral data. Um, that was like six hours a, a day in two sessions of three hours. And I really wanted to see exactly what they're doing, how they're spending their time, like hour per hour, you know, and see if there was any patterns or anything. And I wanted to look at their social interactions as well. So I looked at both affiliative and then agonistic behaviors as well, because you know I wanted to see, I wanted to get an indication of how they behave towards each other, you know, what are their dynamics like? Um, And then of course, with agonistic behavior, that's something you want to keep an eye on anyway. So I wanted to get like a good kind of outlook into that, you know, Um, so with the agonistic behavior, especially with the other behaviors, I just recorded instantaneous, just every minute. But with agonistic, I did all occurrence because I really wanted exact data. I wanted to see exactly what was happening. So I was looking at, you know, pushing, Um, displacement, charging, mock charge, anything, you know, in that kind of wheelhouse. Yeah. So um, that was really interesting, actually, Um, with their activity budgets. It was quite cool to see because it was, uh, we have 1.3. So we have one male and three females. And I did a focal study. So I was watching all of them individually the whole time. And when I (laughs) analyzed the data, it was really nice because um, since I did like hour per hour, kind of looking into it in that depth, you can see that they all have their own kind of like pattern of like routine. Like some at nine o'clock, someone will be eating more and it's the same, you know, it it was really cool. So they all have their own little behavioral patterns, which was nice to really see on paper, you know? And then um, with the social interaction as well, I recorded, and also with the social, the positive and negative, I recorded um, the initiator and then the receiver, the recipient as well of the behavior, so that um, oh, okay. with the positive social interactions like the play behaviors and anything affiliative, um, I could really turn that into a social network diagram that linked each individual, and um, the link was weighted, uh, and it represented you know the frequency of positive affiliative um, social interactions. So you could really see you know, their, their relationships. It was, it was really nice. Yeah. I thought
1: that was pretty
0: cool. Yeah, no, that's,
1: that's fascinating. Yeah. I I think, um, you know, you also highlighted this sort of activity budget and, you know, these baselines that these animals perform and, and I find, you know, it's true with so many animals. They're so like, like us, we're like, we're so routine based. And when I, when I tell people to start, like you know these surveillance sort of programs and and these observation programs it sounds overwhelming to know what the animals doing mm-hmm. for 24 hours a day and like that just sounds like an over what like you'd have to have full time people looking at these cameras but in yeah. reality you know there's they, they form these routines and what you really need is a baseline and to understand what these routines look like and then periodically you know seeing what those routines are now and then comparing mm-hmm, yeah. it against, you know, and it's, it's much easier to see a deviation from that routine as opposed exactly. to, you know, writing down what they're doing every minute of every day for mm-hmm. perpetuity because that, that's just, you're just going to end up with too much data and then it's not going to really mean anything. But yeah, yeah they, they form these routines and it becomes much, much more manageable yeah
2: exactly and it's really nice like especially looking into you know the affiliative and agonistic behavior of course you want to keep an eye on the agonistic behavior actually in the study it was like minimal like less than one percent over the entire study so it indicates you know that dynamics are good everything is stable and then with that um social network kind of Uh, dynamic there, you're able to, you know, check back in a year and see if it's changed, you know, see where people, uh, where the elephants stand in the herd, you know, have dynamics changed? Yeah. You know, who's close with who, you know, it's, it's something to compare back to.
1: Yeah. Well, and I find that allows you to be more proactive and less reactive to welfare problems. And because, you know, so often, you know, a zoo will start a sort of welfare audit because, of you know construction happening or because there's a stereotypic behavior or because Mm -hmm. you know any number but what you really want is the data beforehand and not really like when you start collecting data when there's already a problem then you you know it's it's
0: useful but it's not nearly as
1: useful if you have that baseline prior and then you can actually have something to compare it to you know so exactly yeah, I mean, they, yeah. they always
2: say prevention is better than cure, right? It's it's so hard when you already have an established kind of issue, like especially behavioral problems. You know, it's, it's yeah. such a tough thing to really like eliminate, eliminate, you know? So mm-hmm. it's better to know prior, you know, and at least see some signs of, you know, dynamics are changing or potential problems are going to come up, you know, so yeah, that, that was um, definitely yeah. something that we thought about as well. And then even with the baseline, you know, comparing that to like wild elephant behavior. So like we found uh, in the lit review that the wild elephants, they will spend like um, 60 to 80% of their time feeding. So when I looked at our data, ours were in the fifties, which means we're just below, you know, that, right. that rate. So it shows that, you know, we need to change up how we feed our feeding methods and try and extend the foraging duration and look into more effective enrichment. You know, it shows us what we need to work on and, it's
1: definitely
0: important that you identify that, you know? Yeah. And,
1: and, and that's a great point with, with a particularly feeding because in a lot of zoos and a lot, like a lot of animals are getting concentrates, you know, and like a, hmm. like a pellet,
0: different exactly. grains
1: and stuff like that. And there, and the, there's browsers that are getting, you know, it used to take them, you know, 20 hours sometimes to get the amount of calories that they're getting from this, you know, 15 minute feeding period. And then it's like, yeah. well, what are they supposed to do? the time right so it's so important to actually compare those and sort of get an idea and, and a lot of the time it's hard to get to the point where um you know you're matching the wild perfectly because some of the you know foraging times of of animals vary a lot per year and per yeah. food source and so many other factors but yeah understanding that and actually being able to have uh, the data that you can co- kind of compare is is mm-hmm. is so huge and, and as opposed to just sort of estimating, like, yeah, it looks like they're eating for most of the time.
2: Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. It's good to know where you are and what you kind of want to work towards, even if you can't match wild behavior perfectly. Of course, you know, it's understandable, but at least you know where you are, you know, it's definitely important, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, how do you typically approach these sort of welfare problems or welfare challenges or um, some of these type of things that we're that we're talking about?
2: Yeah. um, Well, we do have an audit system in place and, you know, we're trying to do that sort of like now we're trying to get sort of every animal audited, you know, not just if there's a potential problem, we're, we're trying to like audit now and see what we need to change. Even if we have no problems, you know, to try and um, get ourselves into the right sort of category. So um, thankfully IAZA has a a lot of um, resources about this kind of audit stuff. So, Um, I'm very grateful to have some sort of guidance in that, which is really nice. Uh, But if, you know, for example, we had an established problem, a, a stereotypic behavior or something, for sure the most important thing is to get as much information about it as possible. So definitely like looking into the baselines again, to see how bad the behavior is, you know, how established it is, see if there's any sort of triggers or stressors or try and identify whether maybe it's a frustration or boredom or, you know, just getting any information at all to try and see what you can do to alleviate that kind of behavior is definitely a big one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that it's uh yeah, as I said earlier, it's it's interesting to see how different people uh, approach uh, different things and uh, how does the sort of welfare audit process work? Like is there a specific um, is there specific resources that you use, uh, or, it, or is it a sort of, um, proprietary system that you guys have developed?
2: Uh, yeah. So, um, it was, ta- I was tasked with kind of coming up with the process for us to do it. So, um, yeah, thankfully, yeah, I had a lot of resources and I went through a few different zoos of templates and kind of formats and. Sort of chose the one that i thought would give the most information but was also easy to do as well and easy to check off so um it's based on the five domains but there's like uh four categories so nutrition um, environment behavior and stressors that's the four categories and there's roughly about 30 questions so usually uh myself and a few keepers and if there's already established problem if it's a a priority species or a priority animal, we would have a senior staff, like a curator with us as well. And we will go to the area where the animal is living and we will kind of assess all of their different living areas and check the animal, the behavior and work our way down that list of questions. And it's pretty, it's pretty easy so that you can bash it out in like 30 minutes to an hour. So it's quite efficient and uh, you just answer the questions and it's, uh, you tick yes, no, um, somewhat, or like non applicable. And then at the end of every category, you sort of add up how many yeses and nos and what's you have. And then you uh, sort of justify every answer and fill out the information. And then you can kind of see, you know, if you're, you're having a lot of somewhats and a lot of no's, you know, what you need to address, you know. So then you can start to make, um, you know, an action plan and decide what you need to do. We normally have a meeting afterwards with all of the key people and we. We set up goals and timelines and what we need to do, and then after those changes have been implemented, we'll reassess again to see you know how we've changed and if there's anything still kind of in the somewhat or no range, so you know we can still work right. on it. Yeah, so that's usually how we do it.
0: Yeah, no, that
1: that sounds like an awesome system, and thank you for uh, explaining that because you know it's it's important to share these resources because there's a lot of zoos and uh, you know keepers that. They, their facility might not have a person that's dedicated to be work working on these things. So when you have these resources available to people, it it, it really speeds up the process and allows it to be much more accessible. Because uh, you know, welfare audits and stuff like that, they sound very daunting. And mm. because it's you know, do it differently, and there's not really um, this is the way you should do it kind of thing. So it, it, it's uh, it's definitely tough it's not as approachable as some some other things so um yeah thank you thank you for sharing that um you you said you sort of uh, uh were were instrumental in in sort of starting a behavioral husbandry program and uh, really managing it now do you have any advice uh for those people that might be you know keepers and trying to start a behavioral husbandry program at their facility that might not have one or or sort of improve uh, to the point of being a sort of world class enrichment program
2: Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I would say firstly, try not to get too overwhelmed because sometimes it can just feel like such a, a daunting task, like such a monumental project to undertake. I would just say, you know, prioritize your animals, categorize them whether you want to choose like a priority species like primate or carnivore or an elephant, or if you have an animal, an individual that should be a priority, start there and then make it systematic, you know, take it bit by bit, because if you look at it, you know, it can be so overwhelming. Just narrow it down and work your way through it. You know, take your baseline behaviors and, and see what you're working with. And, you know, if you're starting an enrichment program, the best thing to do is to research natural history. Like, I can't say it enough. You need to know what mm-hmm. the animal should be doing, how they spend their time. Um, but look at the individual as well. You know, animals might have health problems, you know, behavioral problems. Look at your area as well and the limitations of your enclosures, because that's important too. It's important yeah. to consider if you have hot wire or moats or any of these things are all important aspects of that. So, I think. Um, Asa, i think it's Asa has a really good enrichment goal questionnaire so i that's what i mm. used actually when i started and it was just the best because you can really tailor it to um you know the species and any individuals in that collection you know and you can have that on record mm-hmm. so that was really good and then you can use that to start your enrichment program because now you have goals and you know the behaviors that you want to encourage and what you want to do with your enrichment you know whether it's like a biological goal or a behavioral goal or even like logistical if you want to shift them or something you know you can decide that using that as your baseline so that's really nice and then if you've already got some sort of action with enrichment already but you just want to sort of organize it you know check what enrichment you have and see what else you can do or what else you want to build you know make a project list i'm a big one for lists i love a good list so yeah
0: yeah <laughs> you know
2: Uh, Make a a list and just work your way through and take it day by day and animal by animal, you know. And then another piece of advice, you need good support from your management, but also from your keepers. Because one person cannot do it all. You know, the keepers realistically are going to be the ones carrying out the program. So you really need to have, like, all hands on deck. You need good support. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, empower the keepers as well, you know. Create an enrichment committee Ask keepers for their input, their ideas, you know, even if they give you an idea and it's it's a small enrichment, do it, you know, do it with them and, yeah. you know, empower them. Positive reinforcement for the human, you know, like this is the way to make it.
1: Yeah, no, and, and I think that's so important, um, you know, especially prioritizing the animals and and creating these goals because... I find so many people get so bogged down in how they're yeah. going to record their enrichment and evaluate their enrichment, but not actually looking at what goals and what natural behaviors they're encouraging and how effective those. because you know if if you have twenty enrichment items and they're all doing the same thing, you really exactly. only have sort of right? so yeah, yeah, and having the- goals and yeah really focusing on the animals that are going to benefit the most and mm-hmm. then you know sort of branching out from there is creates such a better backbone for an enrichment program than you know just figuring out how you're going to record and starting with the spreadsheets like you really need to start with the basics and yeah getting yeah. empowered to make those decisions and and to uh, feel like they can actually get stuff done because that's the biggest that's where people like burn out and they just don't want to do it anymore. Is when exactly. they run in all these rocks and then they're they have fifty enrichment you know items and and projects that they've started and they just haven't because they don't have the support and then they just go well what am I doing right
2: exactly exactly it just doesn't work that way you know
1: yeah yeah so so do you have advice for people that. Um, Because one of the things I hear the most is that lack of support and, you know, or even team members, especially with these small teams, you know, keepers are, you know, usually four, five, six, seven uh, person teams. Um, So when there's a couple people on those teams that is not on board with enrichment items, especially if you have a team of four people. Uh, that could be a huge roadblock for you. So do you have advice for people, for getting people on board and for dealing with that as a person that might be wanting to push the enrichment program forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've experienced myself as well. You know, I think at some point, every keeper will experience this with a colleague, you know, you know, that enrichment is like an extra job, you know, we don't have time or it's too messy or, you know, we've heard it all, you know. So for me, how I approached it was, um, and what I found really worked was education, whether it's like informal or formal. So, informal, if I had, had a colleague like that, you know, I would ask them for an idea for enrichment for their animal. We would make it together, give it to the animal, we'd observe, then we evaluate it together, you know. And I really tried to make it fun because for me, as a keeper, yeah. enrichment is my favorite thing, you know, it, it just blows yeah, my absolutely. mind. That people don't find it fun, you know. It's one of the best parts of the job to be able to sort of make something to create an opportunity for the animal to show a behavior and see them, you know, interacting and enjoying it. So like for me, that that kind of enriches me in a way. So I try to get the keepers to experience that as well and and try to show them that it's, you know, a fun, fun part of the job. And then on the flip side of it, with more like structured um, staff training. So that's one of my responsibilities as well. And I normally do kind of workshops with the keepers, which is like a mix of kind of theory, animal welfare, enrichment, all of these things that tie in together. And then I also do a practical part as well. So we'll go out and we'll observe a species and everyone will have their own species to observe. And they'll come back and they'll create some enrichment. They'll do a bit of natural history research and go through the whole proposal process, the official sort of flow chart at all and do it for real. Then they'll make their enrichment. Give it to the animal and observe again. And for them, I feel when they can compare the actual behavioral data, even if it's just an hour or a half an hour, you know, they have something physical to compare, and they see it firsthand. They really see the value in it. And you know, I've had sort of resistant keepers, you know, come up to me after those kind of uh, formal like trainings, and they told me, you know, I didn't really think much of enrichment before. I thought it was kind of a waste of time, you know. But now I really get it, and like it was a 360 flip you know they just completely changed and they're they're really into enrichment now so i really think the key is empowering people through education you know not preaching but showing them how it works
1: yeah and and it's and it's important to have that sort of mindset going into it because it's very easy especially being one of those team members that 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 feels like they're being held back or feels like they they can't get anywhere it's important to keep in mind that you know at least in my experience almost everybody that I work with, like loves animals. That's why they're there. So everyone's approaching this out of, um, you know, the mindset of animal welfare, but, you know, they might not be thinking with the current research and with enrichment in mind, you know, when people are shooting down enrichment, it's not because they are They're saying, like, I don't want this animal to thrive and I don't want it to do well. It's more it's more out of, you know, personal fear that, you know, they have to sort of change their ways or uh, things like that. I I have never really ran into a person that is purposely shooting down enrichment out of malicious intent or anything. Mm. So it's so important. Yeah, be keeping that in mind and yeah, approach it through empowering people as opposed to, you know, shooting them down and, and, and telling them that they're that they're a bad zookeeper or something like that. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's a very good, uh, you know, mindset um, to be to be focusing on in those sort of situations. Yeah,
2: yeah. it's very easy to become frustrated with it, but you kind of have to just approach it from the other direction, you know you know, rather than butting heads, just kind of persuade them in a gentle way, you know? And if you do have to give like feedback, because we do we do have a part of our proposal process where the keepers will have to identify any safety considerations or something like that. And I tell them, look, just be critical. Yeah. Just think of the worst possible outcome and write it down. You know, if you've got nuts and bolts, maybe they'll undo them and eat them. You know, I just try to get them to think of it that way so that they understand. Also, if I raise a safety consideration, it's not out of, you know, maliciousness it's it's about how can we make it safer how can we do it but do it in a better way and that's also a part of the evaluation process as well
1: yeah and and creating effective enrichment is is a skill and something that takes practice because you know no matter no matter practice or or skill you have like you're you're still going to make enrichment that that just doesn't doesn't do what you thought it was going to do or the animal just looks at it like it's a piece of junk you know even though you've spent Mm -hmm. days and days perfecting it and you've done all this all sorts of things like it,
0: it's a yes. process you know and
1: and it's constant evaluation it's constant learning um and it's constant sort of tracking what works and what doesn't work and and it, it's yeah it's a it's a skill and it's something that you'll get better at so it's yeah, you yeah. can't be you can't be discouraged kind of things and exactly, and, and the yeah. same goes to convince people to to do enrichment you know it's a it's a skill and the way you approach it and um everything like that yeah it's it's all it's all very very important and something that you got to work on
2: yeah it's something that kind of develops over time you know
1: yeah no absolutely um so do, do you have advice specific advice uh for people looking to deliver better more effective enrichments uh the bus cuz time's so so precious and and although you do have to fail uh to design effective enrichment you know it's uh the sooner you can get to the 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 behavior that you want or the sort of goal that you want the better because you know we don't all have unlimited time
2: yeah um i don't know i would usually start with i mean the evaluation process is really an important part of that knowing what kind of currently works as well and what the animal has interacted with previously so maybe you can take ideas from that but for me even now i still find it's trial and error and like you said you can never guarantee What the animal's going to do with it, or if they're even going to touch it, or if they're going to, you know, avoid it completely, you know. So I think that's that's something even I'm still kind of working on, you know.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, yeah, and I I think the most important, one of the most important things is to is to you know obviously doing this safely, but fail as fast as possible with these things because I find so people have these ideas for these grand enrichment items that are gonna take thousands of dollars and man, manpower and this and that and this, but it's like, you know, the simplest thing that you can think of and, and just try it out and see, see what works. And then go back to the, you can always make something better later, you know, as long as it's safe for the animal, try it and then, you know, build on those kind of things. And as opposed to being focused on this, this huge, uh, really complicated, complicated item. And, and yeah, go through that process as many times as possible. And and yeah, yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's definitely what, what I think is the most important and what, what I see people struggle with the most.
2: Yeah. I mean, you don't have to come up with this amazing idea because, you know, it, it's happened to me. I've been that keeper too, where I had this massive idea, you know, that was going to be brilliant for my kudu. And then I gave it to them. And, you know, no matter how many times I introduced it, I just did not care. Yeah. so i think it's happened to us all i always say the simplest enrichment is the best it's about you know just about the animal you you kind of just have to know your animal as well and kind of work with that and try it out you know yeah. the simplest is the best
1: yeah yeah it's definitely uh don't be afraid to fail when it comes yeah. to uh this kind of stuff because yeah yeah it's it's important to fail fail quickly and and you know make sure yeah. you're recording that data so people know what, what has been tried and, and what to try again and how to sort of it.
2: This is such a, that's such an important thing. You know, sometimes, you know, I'll know a keeper has an idea and I know that they have plans to try it out. And then when I follow up about it, they're like, Oh, you know, it didn't work. And, you know, I didn't want to share what I did because it it wasn't successful. And I always tell them it's not about, you know, whether it's successful or not, that's, that's still really important. And you tried, you know, and other people will know what to do, what to do, or, you know, it's really important. Don't, don't hide your failures. They're not failures if you're learning from it, you
1: know? No, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's so important because, yeah, again, there's no, there's no handbook for this kind of stuff with, exactly. with what's going to work for your individual animal. Like, you, you just have to figure it out. And the only way to figure it out is to try stuff and share your knowledge and, um, yeah. yeah, ask a lot a of questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so what do you think? Is there like a mistake that sort of um, like is highlighted in your mind that you see a lot of people make with uh, behavioral husbandry programs? And is, is there something that jumps out to you?
2: Yeah, this is a really good question. So there, there is, um, there's kind of often this kind of uh, culture among zookeepers. I'm sure you know as well, you know, sometimes there's this like competitiveness, you know, and like sometimes a little bit of like almost like ownership over this is my animal, you know, I'll be the yeah. one to train it, you know, and maybe there's a colleague that wants to initiate some training program with that animal, but they're, they're kind of blocked. And then that person is then denied the opportunity to learn, you know, and develop their skills and and grow as a keeper and learn alongside the yeah. animal as well. So I would definitely see, say that that is one of the biggest mistakes that you can possibly make because you've just demotivated your team member you know you've stopped him from learning and uh you know you're going to burn out because one person cannot do everything you know you need to give people the opportunity and delegate tasks you know i think it's a it's really important and allowing someone else to you know take on some extra work and learn and develop their skills as like a trainer or with enrichment you know letting them shine is not going to dim your light it's just gonna you know light up the room a bit more benefit everything overall so i really think that's that's definitely one of the biggest mistakes i can think of you know not sharing your knowledge and not supporting your teammates it's a big one
1: yeah no that's that was a lovely way of saying that i think yeah and i i've seen a lot of people that have been very possessive and over specific animals and i've Mm -hmm. never once seen that benefit the animal you know exactly it It doesn't never ever does because I, I just think, and you see it particularly with uh, new, like seasonal staff and people that are sort of just getting into the whole, um, y- y- like the whole industry and, and with, with these seasonal seasonals uh, that come in, uh, you see that, you, I find you see that the most, you know, just because this person doesn't have a lot of experience doesn't mean they're sort of devoid of, of good ideas.
2: Exactly, exactly. And you don't want to demotivate your team. It's just going to bring the whole culture down and everything, everyone will be less productive, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a, lot of this, a lot of the times, like the people that come in that are brand new, they're going to see stuff that you didn't see and uh, they might have a great suggestion or a great approach that's completely new to a problem that you've been having. So trying to involve mm-hmm. as many people as possible in every decision you make is always going to benefit people. More. Definitely. You know, and the end at the end. of Exactly. So that's, yeah, that's fantastic advice. But uh, so, so uh, are there any accounts or resources that you'd recommend people check out? And, uh, you know, where can people find you and see what you're up to?
2: Sure. uh, Yeah. Um, I mean, I look at resources everywhere, you know, anything online related to behavioral husbandry, I'm looking at it, you know, Um, things like EASA have great resources, ASA, you know, all of those kind of organizations they tend to like collectively pool all of their resources together in categories you know so that's a that's a good one to check out if you want more information if you want to read up on it you know um yeah that's what i would say i would go to those kind of areas and and do some research you know Uh, yeah um for me i'm quite active on linkedin as well so that's where i kind of share anything that i'm quite proud of at the moment you know so
1: yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah, I will. I will uh, link your LinkedIn in the uh, show notes. And uh, okay. I'll try to find some of the resources you, you were talking about throughout the podcast and also uh, link those. But um, yeah, that was a that was a great chat. And thank you so much for uh, coming on. And I hope uh, everybody enjoyed uh, listening to uh, Demi's fantastic opinions on all things behavioral husbandry and animal welfare.
2: Thank you so much.
0: So yeah, thank you for coming on, Debbie.
2: Thank you. That was really great.
0: We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.